welcome to episode 46 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most untraditional host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We are continuing to work our way through season four, and in this episode, I will be covering episode 15, Bait Once, Bait Twice. And I'll also be taking a look at a season four episode from the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. It'll be episode nine, Haoli La Ho'omaikai. I probably butchered that. I promise you, I do study Hawaiian, and I just suck at pronouncing any word in any language. Anyway, I'm working with a slightly new setup. I have a new laptop that I'm recording on for the first time, and adjustments are still being made. Also, I have been recording with my fan on to block out some of the noise in my house, but I'm not able to do that today, so yes, you're going to be hearing whatever someone is watching at an incredibly loud volume in the next room. Sorry about that. But as I always say, that's why you're here, the ambiance. So enough about me. Let's go to Hawaii. Guess who just arrived? Just about set. Is a man on the scene yet? Uh-huh. He's working the girl. Season 4, Episode 15, Bait Once, Bait Twice, air date January 4th, 1972, directed by Alf Schellen. Sorry if I mispronounced that. This is his first of seven episodes. Story by Jerome Ross. This is his only episode of Hawaii Favo. And teleplay by Will Lauren. This is his first of two episodes. A guy bikes up to a hotel with a knapsack and takes the elevator up. He puts on a latex glove before entering the room, which isn't suspicious at all. There's not much inside except for a phone, a folding chair, and a view of the building across the street. Our mystery man with questionable hair rigs the phone so he's on speakerphone, checking in with a voice saying the line will remain open from now on. He then proceeds to set up his sniper's nest. Meanwhile, across the street, a woman steps out onto the ledge, looking like she might jump. Naturally, this sort of thing attracts attention. Steve, who happens to be in the neighborhood getting his hair done, rushes over to help, as predicted. From the sniper's vantage point, he can see Steve trying to talk the woman down. He kicks back with a smoke and waits. Steve talks to the woman on the ledge as Dr. Kamakona arrives, who encourages Steve to keep on doing what he's doing. It looks like a suicide attempt as she's checked in under a fake name, saying her luggage would be sent on later but it seems like she's really scared. Steve tells uniforms to get the local news to get a shot of her and broadcast it to see if anyone knows her. If they do, they need to call the room. Steve tries to go out on the ledge with her, but she tells him not to. 
Dr. Kamakona then tries talking to her. The news broadcast, sir, and gambling syndicate head Bonamo and his lawyer, Bart Maris, discuss it. The attorney reminds Bonamo that he's got a case the day after tomorrow with a strong and hostile witness. He needs to worry about that. Bonamo tells him to worry about it. After all, that's what he's paying him for. Someone recognizes the woman and calls it in. As it turns out, it's a jeweler who tells Danny that the woman, Betty Landers, and her fiancé, Howard Miller, had been in the shop looking at wedding rings. This information is relayed to Steve, who goes to talk to Betty. He asks if she wants to talk to Howard. She says yes, and that she'll come in if she can talk to him. However, she doesn't know where Howard is, and she begs Steve to find him. Steve talks to a guy who works with Howard, who says he hasn't seen Howard in five days. Kono confirms that Miller hasn't been home in four days. The switchboard operator at work says Miller has been calling D.A. John Manicott repeatedly. Steve calls the D.A., asking where Miller is. Manicott is hesitant to reveal this information. However, when Steve tells him about Betty, Manicott agrees to meet him at HPD. It turns out that Miller is in protective custody. Steve wants Miller to help them talk Betty off the ledge, but Manicott protests, saying there's already been one attempt on Miller's life. Steve assures him that they'll keep Miller safe, and with 5-0, they roll out to the hotel to see Betty. Steve advises Miller to talk to Betty, but out of view. Miller does so, trying to lure her back in so Steve can grab her. Betty starts to edge back inside. Unfortunately, Miller leans out a little too far, and the sniper shoots him. 5-0 searches the building across the street and, with the help of a couple of witnesses, finds the sniper's nest. Steve calls for Che and then talks to the witnesses who saw the man. They give Kono a description. Chin says that Betty is still in shock and they took her to the hospital where she'll be under guard. A uniform informs Steve that the DA is looking for him. Manicott is not happy with this turn of events. They've been trying to nail Bonamo for years, and Miller was the only one who was willing to testify, until someone tried to kill him. The DA convinced him he'd never be free unless he put Bonamo away, and so he changed his mind. Steve agrees that he blew it, but Bonamo played him to deliver the body. He knew his daily routine, knew exactly where he'd be, knew he'd be the first on the scene, knew that he'd get Miller the fastest. He was used by Bonamo, and he's going to get him for it. He's going to nail him for murder. So we actually spend probably half of this episode on the ledge, which sounds a little boring, but in all reality, it's actually not because we are unraveling events in the, at the same time as Steve is sort of, we know that there is a sniper set up across the street. We watched him roll in on his little bike in his little white short shorts, which is probably like the most distracting thing possible because my first thought was first of all I can understand you wanting to be nondescript since you're going to be committing a long distance murder but man them short shorts they they are not low-key at all because we are talking short shorts we are talking Tom Selleck in Magnum P.I. short shorts we are talking accident waiting to happen ball slippage reveal is imminent. That's how short these shorts are. And so I found this very distracting. Well, this man is setting up an AR-15 in this this hotel room. I'm just thinking, my guy, you need to be wearing a cup or something. I feel like this is impractical for you. 
to be committing murder in short shorts. But it was the early 70s. Fashion was doing its own thing. He also had very questionable hair. It reminded me of, was it Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men? Like that, but more affected by humidity. Anyway, we watch this guy set up his sniper's nest, and he's on the phone. He's rigged the phone so he can talk hands-free, so it's on speakerphone, to a voice on the other end of the line, which obviously we're not going to recognize. So we know shenanigans are taking place. And we know that Betty is involved in the shenanigans that are taking place. We don't know she's Betty at the time. But from his vantage point, obviously, we can see Betty come out on the ledge, which is as predicted by the voice on the phone and by our sniper. Then we see Steve, who happens to be getting his hair did at a, I don't even want to say barbershop. I think it was a proper hair salon. With that quaff that he rocks throughout 12 seasons, it better be an actual hair salon. Anyway, he comes running out at the sound of the fire trucks approaching, because there's obviously a jumper, and rushes to help, as predicted. Because the sniper informs the voice on the phone that the big man is on the scene. So they knew Steve was going to be there. And when he's setting up his shot, we see Betty in the crosshairs first, and then we see Steve in the crosshairs. Our sniper kicks back with a cigarette and waits as it goes into the title credits. But it looks very much so like Steve could potentially be a target, and we're waiting for a particular timing of that. Of course he's not, though he is being used. Steve attempts to talk Betty off of the ledge, and Betty, who is played by Loretta Swit, and she does a magnificent job, obviously. Betty gives him nothing. He's trying to talk to her, trying to find out her name, what she wants, and aside from telling him not to come out onto the ledge, she gives him nothing. So they have to figure out who this woman is, and they come up with the idea, Steve comes up with the idea of using the news cameras who are a live reporter, somebody up on a ledge, because in the 1970s we broadcasted suicides, I guess. I don't know. But that's the situation we've got going on here. He gets the news cameras to get a close-up on her face. Now, she's 18 stories up, so that's one heck of a zoom. And part of the reason why they're scrambling to find out who she is and how they can get her off the ledge is because the firemen are set up underneath of her with one of those trampoline net catch things. But at 18 stories, the chances are pretty not good that she will survive that fall, even if she hits the net. This leads them to the jeweler who remembers them coming in and identifies her as Betty Landers and her fiancé, Howard Miller. They do a background check on her and find out that Betty is a divorcee. She has a daughter named Susan. And of course, when they identify her, Steve goes to talk to her because uh, uh, Dr. Kamakona steps in so Steve can work on some of this investigative stuff. And so Steve comes back. And addresses her by name and asks if she wants to talk to Howard. And this is the first actual interaction we have with her. How about Howard Miller? Would you like to talk with him? Yes. Good. Now I'll come out and help you in so that you'll be out of danger. Then we'll get Mr. Miller. No. Go get Howard. And then I'll come in. Okay, but where do we find him? I don't know. He's gone. He's gone? Gone where? Tell us and we'll get him. I don't know. Find Howard for me. Please. Please find Howard. 
Steve kind of thinks that maybe this is because Howard ran out on her. So he goes to find Howard and he, he locates the business that he works for, finds out he hasn't been in in five days. He's called in to discuss some business, but he hasn't been into the business. Kono confirms that he hasn't been home in four days. And so he t- Steve talks to the switchboard operator looking for uh, any non-work calls, anything that might lead them to where Howard might be. And he finds out that he's been talking to the DA. And the DA is very shady when Steve talks to him and he wants to know where he is. And it turns out it's because he's in protective custody. He's willing to text, testify against Bonamo. Bonamo is a big gambling syndicate guy. They've been trying to bust him for years. When we first meet Bonamo, he is sitting poolside in a questionable Aloha shirt, watching the coverage of Betty up on the ledge. And his lawyer, Bart, is getting him to sign some papers. Now, Bonamo is riveted to this footage. And Bart is not paying attention to it at all. He thinks it's ghoulish. He's not going to give it his attention. He is more concerned with Bonamo's case that's coming up because of this hostile witness, which turns out to be Miller. And it's an interesting exchange between the two men because it looks like Bonamo is getting some enjoyment from this. But he also plays like he doesn't know who Betty is. You know, a suicide is one of the great bonus events of the day breaks up the boredom of the daily routine. That same girl could walk nude down Kalakaua Avenue and hardly anyone would give her a second glance. But she walks out on a ledge, threatens to kill herself, and everybody pays her attention. So we find out that Miller is in protective custody, and he is willing to go save Betty. Manicott is less willing to have him go save Betty because there's already been an attempt made on his life. But Miller wants to go save his girl. The problem is, is that when he gets there, they set up on the window. So he's behind the curtains and he can kind of peek out, lean out and see Betty. Steve is on the other side behind the curtains because when Betty gets close enough, he's going to make a grab for her and bring her in the room. Because as of right now, Five-O is treating this like a suicide case. We have a very emotional scene on the ledge with Howard just out of view. Edge your way back in, slowly, carefully. I'll explain everything. I'm I'm telling you the truth. It wasn't you I walked out on. Darling, I love you, I swear it. As he's doing this, Betty is inching closer and closer and closer to the open window. Howard ends up leaning out just too far and the sniper is able to make his shot. And so we have this really dramatic death as Howard is shot. He falls out the window. So he falls the 18 stories. So if the shot didn't kill him, the fall did. We have Betty standing on the other side of the window screaming and Steve has reached out to grab her. So it's all very dramatic. And now there is a scramble because Steve promised Manicott that nothing would happen to Miller. And something very definite happened to Miller. They race across the street. They find the sniper's nest because two very white, bear-like comic book good kid characters, like you could tell that they are the good squeaky clean kids, were witnesses to this guy coming out of the room. They saw a glimpse of the gun. They give a description of him to Kono. You can overhear it in the background. And he's like, he was wearing a blue shirt and white pants. Sir, he was not wearing pants. Those were short shorts. 
that would have been my very first item I brought up in that description. Kona would have said, what did he look like? He had the shortest, smallest white shorts I have ever seen in my life. I was afraid he was going to slap me in the face with a ball as he was running away. But I digress. Steve still calls in Che to go over the room, even though he thinks that they won't find anything because he's a professional. Clearly, he is a professional. And then Steve has to go and own up to his mistakes. The DA lays everything out that Miller was the only person who was willing to testify against Benamo because he was in debt to him through his gambling games for like an ungodly amount, like $180,000, something just absolutely insane. It wasn't until the DA said, well, these games are rigged that Miller's like, okay, I'll testify. But then someone made an attempt on his life and purposely missed as basically a warning to say, hey, next time we won't if you go through with testifying. So he'd gotten in touch with the DA and said, I don't want to testify anymore. And the DA convinced him by saying, if you don't testify, you will never be free of this man. He will always be there lurking. And that convinced him. And so they put him in protective custody and now he's dead. And so the case against Benamo falls apart because they don't have this witness. Steve, because he is an example of manhood, he has no problem taking responsibility for his mistakes. He's fully admits that he was used. Look, don't tell me I made a mistake. I'll tell you, I blew it, top to bottom. Somebody counted on me to deliver the body, and I did. That building wasn't picked by accident. Somebody knew my routine down to the fact that I went to that barber every Tuesday. They knew that I'd get to the girl first. They knew that I could deliver Miller faster than anybody else. I was twisted, manipulated, used. Now, you want Barry Bonamo? I'll give you Barry Bonamo on a plate. But not for gambling. Murder. Murder one. He goes weekly to get that quaff maintained, as you would expect. So now Steve has a touch of personal vendetta happening because someone used him and he's going to get that person back. And we believe it's Bonamo. He doesn't want, get, want to get Bonamo on gambling anymore. He is going to get him on murder. He is going to make him go down for this. And it's McGarrett, so you know that's going to happen. And Steve does talk to Betty in the hospital because at this point she's considered an accessory. And we really don't know just how much she is involved in this particular setup, how much of it she knew. And what we find out is is really rather heartbreaking in that her daughter was kidnapped and used as leverage to make her draw Howard out in this fashion. Now, she says that the voice on the phone just said that they wanted to talk to Howard. And Steve is a little incredulous about this, and I'm with him, because that you don't go to the trouble of kidnapping a child and promising harm to a child to get someone to come out of hiding if you're just going to talk to them. But I think that Betty kind of can't come to, just the way she talks about it, Betty can't quite come to grips with the fact that she was forced to choose between her child and her fiancé, and she chose her child. And she kind of knew that's what she was hap- what was happening. I don't think she can quite admit that to herself. So Betty is pretty clearly not involved and is pretty traumatized by the whole experience. But she says that she can identify the voice on the phone, which could prove helpful later on. And then the first inkling that things are not as they seem comes in. And that is in a scene with Bonamo and his lawyer, Bart. Bart asks Bonamo whether or not he had something to do with Miller's death. And of course, Bonamo denies it even to his lawyer. 
And Bart says, I can't help you if you lie to me. And he's like, I'm not lying. And then reveals to him that he had no reason to want Miller dead because Miller was paying his debts. He was worth more to him alive than dead. So even though Miller was testifying against him, he was still paying him off. He was still paying off his debts, which Bart didn't know about. Bart feels a bit betrayed by this and says that he would never, he can't believe him. He'll never know if Bonamo had anything to do with Miller's death because he's not being completely 100% truthful to Bart. The second twist that comes up is that 5-0 gets a call that they found a car that belonged to Bonamo that Bonamo reported stolen. And they found this car in the water. And inside this car, they found the sniper. Our guy is Johnny Froman. They knew that's who they were looking for from the description that the two witnesses gave them. And he's a pro. They know of him. So they find him dead in this car. And they find some other evidence in that car as well. And so when they bring in Benamo and his lawyer Bart to officially arrest Benamo for the murder of Johnny Froman, not yet the murder of Miller, at least that wasn't explicitly expressed, they're definitely arresting him for Froman's murder. They lay out all of this evidence against him. Witnesses ID'd Froman in the room. Froman himself put himself in the room. You don't think much of it when you first see it, but he was digging in his ear while he was waiting to take his shot and flicking earwax everywhere. Well, Che found that earwax and he matched it to the corpse of Johnny Froman. Then our medical examiner, Doc, he informs us that Froman didn't drown. He actually succumbed to blood force trauma. And that couldn't have been caused by anything in the car. So it was not an accident that the car went off the road and he hit his head and drowned or anything like that. It was intentional homicide and the car in the body is a dump shop. And inside the car, they found an attache case with $10,000 inside. So that's insinuated to be the payment for Miller's death. Both the case and the money have Bonamo's prints on it. So they have some serious, solid physical evidence tying Bonamo into this case. Not to mention it's his car that he reported stolen that Froman is found dead in. So there's a lot of evidence pointing to Bonamo being the cause of Johnny Froman's death. Bonamo, of course, protests and he claims that he was framed. Bart is incensed that he was not told the truth and he resigns as Bonamo's lawyer and leaves him to hang. Bonamo continues to insist that he was framed. And he says, Miller was paying his debt to me. He was worth more to me alive than dead. Why would I kill someone I'm getting money from? Which is a great point. I would not kill someone I'm getting money from. I like money more than death. But the evidence is really strong and Steve isn't buying it. Now, while Chin Ho agrees with Steve that Bonamo is obviously putting on a performance, It's Danny who's actually troubled by the neatness of this case. The evidence is just too good. But if Bonamo didn't do it, who did? You know who else is too good? This guest cast. Let's take a look at them. Bart Maris was played by James Olsen. This is his first of five episodes. He also appeared in episodes of Route 66, Lancer, McLeod, Bonanza, Colombo, Gunsmoke, Ironside, The Rookies, Mannix, Kung Fu, Harry O, Maud, Cannon, Barnaby Jones, Wonder Woman, 
The Bionic Woman, Lou Grant, Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Bear, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, Little House on the Prairie, Matt Houston, Jake and the Fat Man, and Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the movies Rachel River, Commando, Amityville 2, The Andromeda Strain, Crescendo, Rachel Rachel, The Strange One, and The Shark Fighters. And he appeared in the TV movies Incident on a Dark Street, The Sex Symbol, Someone I Touched, Law and Order, The Spell, The Silent Lovers, Cave-In, and One Police Plaza. As I said, Betty was played by Loretta Swit. This is her fourth of four episodes. She also appeared in A Thousand Pardons You're Dead and the two-parter Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u. Banama was played by Malachi Throne. This is his first of two episodes. He was the narrator of Lancelot Link, as well as the narrator of Visionaries, Knights of the Magical Light. He was Noah Bain on It Takes a Thief, and Martin Phelps on Ben Casey. He also appeared in episodes of Naked City, The Untouchables, 77 Sunset Strip, Barry Mason, The Man from Uncle, Mr. Novak, The Fugitive, Rawhide, Batman, The Big Valley, Lost in Space, Star Trek, and Star Trek The Next Generation, The Wild Wild West, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Mission Impossible, Hogan's Heroes, Canon, Kojak, Electra Woman and Dina Girl, The Rockford Files, What's Happening, Starsky and Hutch, Law and Order, Melrose Place, Babylon 5, The West Wing, and Power Rangers and SPD. He appeared in the movies Catch Me If You Can, Primary Motive, Stunts, The Greatest, and The Young Lovers. And he appeared in the TV movies Assault on the Wayne, A Time for Love, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, and Longarm. Johnny Froman, aka The Pro, was played by Rick Marlowe. This is his first of five episodes. He also appeared in episodes of Bonanza, Death Valley Days, Sea Hunt, Ripcord, and Magnum P.I. And he appeared in the movies Psychedelic Sexualis, The Incredible Sex Revolution, and You Have to Run Fast. Dr. Kamakona was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his 12th of 33 episodes. Howard Miller was played by Norman DuPont. This is his 4th of 10 episodes. D.A. Manicott was played by Glenn Cannon. And this is his first episode as Manicott. He was other characters in previous episodes. Joe Benjamin was played by George Herman. This is his second of 14 episodes. We also saw him in Kiss the Queen Goodbye. Juan Song was played by John Young. This is his only credit. Alice was played by Leanna Petrainer. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in Strangers in Our Own Land. Marion was played by Marika Yamoto. This is her first of five episodes. She also appeared in two episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. And she appeared in episodes of Jake and the Fat Man and Raven. And she also appeared in the TV movie Blood and Orchids. Our director, Alf Jellin, in addition to the seven episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also directed 11 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Hour, 10 episodes of Dr. To Kill Dare, 9 episodes of I Spy, 8 episodes of The Man from U.N.C.L.E., 3 episodes of Mission Impossible, 3 episodes of The Sixth Sense, 2 episodes of Ironside, 2 episodes of Bonanza, 4 episodes of Gunsmoke, 4 episodes of Mannix, 2 episodes of Columbo, 2 episodes of The Family Novak, 10 episodes of The Waltons, 3 episodes of Joe Forrester, 5 episodes of Barnaby Jones, 3 episodes of Vegas, and 5 episodes of Dynasty. He also has directing credits for the movies The McMasters, Midas Run, and The Pleasure Garden. He also has directing credits of the TV movies Long Way Home, 
and Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of the Planet of the Apes. And he has 86 acting credits. Our story was by Jerome Ross. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O, but he also is writing credits for five episodes of Robert Montgomery Presents, 11 episodes of Mama, five episodes of Matinee Theater, eight episodes of Studio One, three episodes of The Untouchables, nine episodes of Armstrong Circle Theater, seven episodes of Dr. Killed Dare, and 13 episodes of Marcus Welby. He also has writing credits for the TV movies Soldier in Love and My Most Unforgettable Character as Told by Carol O'Connor. And our teleplay was by Will Lauren. He has writing credits for two episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He also has writing credits for three episodes of Craft Theater, two episodes of The Witness, two episodes of Route 66, three episodes of General Hospital, and nine episodes of Dallas. He also has writing credits for the TV movie Cry Rape. And he has a creator credit for the TV show Search and Rescue, The Alpha Team. And that is Bait Once, Bait Twice. I like this episode because we do a fair bit of unraveling exactly what's going on with this scenario of Betty being on the ledge and with the sniper across the street and figuring out how Howard Miller fits into all of this. So like I said, you spend quite a bit of time up on the ledge, but it's not boring time. It's not wasted time because you're going down this rabbit hole right with Steve. And then when we hit that twist when Miller's killed and we realize that Steve's been played, we have a whole new angle to be exploring. And it seems pretty obvious until it isn't. And then when you realize that it isn't and you think back on the episode, you realize it never has been. So it's just those little twists. It makes for a really intriguing episode. You should definitely give it a watch. If there's one guy in this town who should know a frame when he sees it, it's you. So you've got to get me off. I've got to get you off. So uh, what are the odds of me actually uh, eating turkey today? We got ten percent chance. Twenty percent. Okay. What? My aunt Deb is there. She's she's, she's going to figure everything out. Well, your aunt Deb, uh, your father's sister. One who took care of Mary after your mother faked her death. Something's seriously wrong with you. You know that? Me? You like reminding me of that? Why would you like reminding me of that? Well, because it's the truth. Yes, the truth. Yes, it's the truth. The Aunt Deb who raised Mary all by herself. That must have been trying. Yeah, you don't know the half of it. She walked away from a record deal when that kid got thrown in her lap. You know that? She was a singer. You know what? I did not. Yeah, she struggled as a backup singer for 20 years, and uh, she finally got a big break, but she walked away from it as soon as Mary came into the picture. Just like that, huh? like that man she knew she couldn't raise a kid if she was going to be on the road half the year so she quit she became a singing coach and said that yeah hey what's up all right here's what we know so four-man crew was out trolling for some skipjack when they hooked this huh 45 gallon barrel it's not your usual bycatch let me guess there's a, a body in here just take a look the rest of them. 2010 Hawaii Five-O, Season 4, Episode 9, Haole La Ho'omaikai. Air date, November 22nd, 2013, directed by Allison Liddy Brown and written by Eric Guggenheim and Moira Kurland. It's Thanksgiving and Five-O is playing their usual family football game. Next touchdown wins, but Steve has to leave to put the turkey in the oven, something he can't trust prep cook Mary to do. Understandable, since his sister was in charge of thawing the turkey, and it didn't. Lucky for both of them, Aunt Deb shows up unannounced just in time to save the day, right before Steve gets a call about a case. 
A body found in a barrel full of lye is ID'd as a Secret Service agent by the name of Russo. A discussion with head Secret Service agent Campbell finds that the president decided last minute to spend Thanksgiving in Hawaii. And since the Secret Service has all of the presidential trip info on their phones and the killer is now in possession of one of their phones, this is a problem. Campbell doesn't have the resources to find the killer, so it's left up to 5-0. Steve and Danny go to the rental house of the guy the agent was supposedly checking out. Instead, they find the nosy neighbor Sheila and her daughter Andrea. Andrea is just visiting for the holiday, but Sheila gives them the goods on the missing suspect, as well as the secret service agent that came knocking. The suspect left just after the agent did. The investigation is interrupted when Steve is notified that his Aunt Deb has been arrested. It seems that after she and Mary tried to score a new turkey, Aunt Deb got busted for trying to buy pot because the dispensary wouldn't take her medical marijuana card. In a jail cell, not how she wanted to do it, Aunt Deb informs Steve that she has a brain tumor and has opted out of treatment because she doesn't want to spend her remaining time in and out of the hospital feeling like shit. The news will devastate Mary, but Aunt Deb assures Steve that she will tell her when the time is right. She also wants no special treatment and insists on being booked. Steve later sends Catherine to pick Aunt Deb up from jail, and at Aunt Deb's request, Catherine takes her to the most beautiful spot on the island. Since Catherine is busy and Kono is off-island looking for Adam, it's up to the boys to crack this case. Facial recognition from security video of the suspect attacking the agent IDs the killer as a hitman named Barkov. The particular mix of lie that the agent's body was found in leads them to a cleaner named Moreno, whom they track down. They grill Moreno about Barkov's assassination plans for the president, as they've now been informed that the president isn't just visiting Hawaii for the holiday. He's also conducting a super-secret meeting with some North Korean officials, something that Barkov somehow found out about. Or did he? Is the president really the target? And will 5-0 stop him in time? So... I watched this episode because it's one of the Larry Minetti episodes, and I watched all of those. And his brief bits are pretty spectacular. He's a hell of a football player. Just, just, just give me the ball. I'll get it into the end zone. The only way you're getting the ball is if you got a jetpack up your coolie, okay? <laughs> anyway, this season four episode doesn't have any old school show connections, aside from a brief appearance by Al Harrington. But it does have Carol Burnett and a turkey that doesn't thaw, so that's fun too. Happy Thanksgiving. And I love the family Thanksgiving. I love that there's a football game. I love Steve and Mary bickering because the turkey didn't thaw, which is a classic sitcom trope. I love that Aunt Deb comes in to save the day, but they're being thwarted at the grocery store because the turkey they get is really tiny. And at the end, Thanksgiving is saved because everybody goes to La Mariana. So I love all of that. And the whole family is involved, except for Kono, because she's off on the mainland looking for Adam for reasons i don't know where he is i'm not familiar with this particular story arc also grover is included so shy mcbride i know i think this is the season that he came on the show and ended up becoming a regular character he's a chicago transplant to hpd and he has some questionable background with steve i guess he outed him to the governor he ratted out ratted steve out to the governor about something i don't know what 
But then he and Steve had a bit of a bonding moment over something else. I don't know what Danny makes reference to it because Danny is doubtful about him coming to the family football game and the family Thanksgiving. But right now all of his family is in Chicago. He had nowhere else to go. And Steve basically extends an olive branch, so to speak, by inviting him to participate in these things. And it seems like Danny's the only one that has an actual issue with it. From what I've seen from later seasons, who wouldn't want Grover hanging out with him? He's pretty great. Anyway. What I really love about this episode is Aunt Deb. I mean, because it's Carol Burnett, so how can you not? But she is the emotional center of this episode. We find out that she gave up a singing career to raise Mary after Stephen Mary's mom faked her death. So she's a pretty important person in their lives, particularly for Mary. She Mary's very bonded with her. And Aunt Deb and Mary have a bonding moment while they're trying to secure this new turkey like a baby whisper. <laughs> I got my moves. Oh, yeah? Mm. Can I have some? What is it? I don't know. I just, I, I really feel like I'm, I'm in over my head. Did you ever feel like that with me? Always. Really? So I'm guessing I didn't make life very easy for you. Well, let me put it this way. You had your moments. How'd you do it, Deb? Huh? I mean, I feel like I have no clue what I'm doing. You think I did? <laughs> Honey, I, I was winging it the whole time, and it was, it was scary. But being a mom is the hardest job in the whole wide world, you know. But, you know, I can't think of anybody who's better suited for it than you. You got a big heart, you're smart. All you have to do is love her with everything you got, and you're going to be fine. And then she turns around and chastises the meat guy for giving them the smallest turkey he can find. <laughs> and... It's just a great switch of here's this very lovely maternal moment. And then she snaps on the meat guy. So Aunt Deb's pretty great. She's she's hip. She's badass. And she takes no shit. And then we find out her visit isn't just because of Thanksgiving. We find that out when she's busted for buying pot because the dispensary, or as she says, the fa- those fascists at the dispensary wouldn't take her medical marijuana card. The guy at the dispensary told her where she could buy, and it turns out she bought from, as she says, an ARC. It's amazing. I love it. But we find out that Aunt Deb has a brain tumor. How bad is it? It's bad. (laughs) Okay, all right. What's the plan? What's the course of treatment? There is none. There is none. It's, It's... too far along. No, okay, but, uh, you know, chemo, radiation. No, we talked about that, but I, I decided against it. Why? Because they said it wouldn't work. So I, All right, so you just, that's it, you just give up? Is that no, what you're no, going to no, do? Because no, you can't way, do whoa, that. Whoa, no, whoa, you whoa, can't, because that's no. what people, you got to fight this. Listen to me. I don't want to spend whatever time I have left in some hospital getting pumped full of poison and feeling crappy all the time, okay? That's not how I want to do this. This is what I've decided. And Steve is really struggling with this, knowing that his aunt's going to die. And he realizes that she's not just here for the holiday. She's just not here because she hasn't visited Steve in a while. She's here to say goodbye. This goodbye is going to devastate Mary because that's basically Mary's mom. She raised Mary. She's going to be just crushed. She promises Steve that she'll talk to Mary when the time is right. And we see that at the end of the episode, Mary is outside crying. So she does keep her word because, of course, she would. She's Aunt Deb. She's not the kind of person that goes back on her word. 
Aunt Deb also knows that when she's gone, Steve and Mary are going to need each other more than ever. And they might not want to admit that because they are pretty spectacular with their sibling bickering. So when Catherine picks her up from jail, which when she, when Steve says that he'll send someone to pick her up, he, she says, make sure he's cute. And he sends Catherine and she asks Catherine to take her to the most beautiful place in the island, which Catherine does. And they have this, this little talk because she says that she's worried about Steve and Mary, that they might not realize that they need each other more than ever after she's gone. And so she asks Catherine to make sure that they stick together. And I think it's very sweet to make that request, even though I'm not very fond of Catherine for inexplicable reasons. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. Anyway, so here's a spoiler alert. Jump ahead a couple of seconds if you actually want to watch this story arc unfold in real time if you haven't watched it. Aunt Deb does have a full arc with her illness where she, in which she later changes her mind about treatment. She starts to get treatment. She ends up meeting a man while she's getting treatment. He is also getting treatment. They end up getting married. He ends up passing away and Aunt Deb finally succumbs to her illness while she's visiting Stephen and Mary in her pursuit of finishing the bucket list that her and her husband had created. And she had a kind of a special little bucket list that pertains specifically to Steve and Mary. So it's a very sweet storyline. And it's a storyline that I actually love because so many of those episodes involve Larry Minetti. So I ended up watching that whole arc. It's one that is very emotional. And like I said, it's sweet. And Aunt Deb is a very fun character. But it's something that you wouldn't expect in a show like this. As for the actual case in this episode, it's solid. There's a Secret Service guy who's found murdered and 5 finds out that the president is visiting for Thanksgiving and then they have to track down the killer. It looks very much like the president is the target and they run the, that investigation with that in mind. So it, it looks pretty much like that's how this is going to go, that we have somebody that's trying to assassinate the president. And the president at the time was Barack Obama. So it made sense for him to be spending Thanksgiving in Hawaii as that's where he was raised. They end up tracking down the guy that the Secret Service agent was looking into, and he they go to his rental house, and they're surprised by the nosy neighbor, Sheila, and her daughter, Andrea. And Sheila is amazing because she is absolutely that neighbor that has her curtains open, and she knows exactly what's going on in the neighborhood with everyone. You just have some questions about the man who's renting this house. Can you tell us what he looked like? Sure, he's 40s, 6 feet black hair. Oh, and you know, and he had a tattoo on the back of his neck. Uh, how about this guy? You, uh, you seen him? Yes, I saw him and Mr. Nolan talking outside yesterday. What time was that? A little after four. You know, he didn't stay very long, maybe three, four minutes, and then he left. And Mr. Nolan took off right after that. But I, I haven't seen either of them since. She's fabulous. When we meet Sheila and Andrea, because Andrea doesn't know what's going on. She'd just gotten there like an hour before she doesn't live with her mother. So she has no idea what the hell's going on in this house. So you think that Sheila and Andrea are basically there just to give us information about our suspects and our Secret Service agents. So Fivo can track this guy down and continue the investigation. And they do. They do use that information for that from what Sheila tells them and from what they, they're able to get from TSA and facial recognition and all that. They find out the guy's a professional assassin and he's working with a professional cleaner. The lie mixture is the MO of a certain cleaner who happens to be on the island. They find him through TSA and they go talk to him. 
So this is looking very, very serious for the president. And they take that information to Campbell, who's the head of the Secret Service guy, and he's played by Paul Ben Victor. And they tell him basically that the president can't come to Oahu. There is a problem with this because it turns out that he's not just there for a little Hawaiian turkey. He's also there to have a super secret meeting with some Korean, North Korean officials. And this could be very important for country relations. So he can't cancel. What they end up doing is basically changing where this meeting is going to take place to one of the different islands. He has another home, I think on Kona is what they said. And they kind of relocate things there. So he's at least off Oahu. With the president somewhat safer, 5-0 manages to track down the, the cleaner, Moreno, and he reveals some startling information. He has no idea what they're talking about when they question him about an assassination plot against the president. He doesn't know exactly who Barkov is there to hit. He was just called in to help get rid of the Secret Service agent. All he knows is it's a woman named Andrea. As it turns out, it's Sheila's daughter. And the reason why Barkov is there to kill her is because she was working in Texas and happened to witness a, a Russian mob hit. Now, instead of going to the feds, she went underground. And the Russians would like her eliminated. Please and thank you. So now we know that Barkov is really there for Andrea. And Andrea does have some brains. Obviously, she would have to because she was man she managed to go underground, get off the grid, and stay alive for several months now. And when she and her mother come home from wherever they were, they find the door ajar. And instead of going in and being instantly murdered, Andrea recognizes this as a threat the threat that it is, and she and her mom take off running. Say we have to, she just says, she doesn't explain shit to her mother. She's like, we gotta go. We gotta get out of here now. And they, they run for it. And Barkov chases them down to the beach. 5-0 rolls up and joins in on the chase. And Barkov manages to kind of catch up with him on the beach. And he shoots Andrea. He wounds her. And just as he's closing in for the kill, Chin Ho manages to shoot him from a distance. And save Andrea and Sheila. So Sheila lives another day to spy on her neighbors. There was no doubt that Jinho was going to take out the hitman because you're not going to beat 5-0, regardless of the incarnation. All of this leads to the boys, Steve, Danny, Chin, and Grover, getting to meet the president. And, of course, we don't see that. We just see them standing out on the tarmac as the plane arrives on Oahu, and they're waiting to be greeted by him. And the other guys are giving Danny some shit because, I guess, Danny is very nervous about meeting the commander-in-chief. You right? Why wouldn't it be all right? Well, you do seem a little nervous. Nervous? Oh, no, no, we're about to meet the president. Why are you so zen? That's a better question. All of you. Well, I'm just cool like that. You know, the president's a local boy. That makes us practically all a PD. Oh, that means... Ready? I was nervous, too, the first time. The first time? When did you meet the president? I can't tell you that. It's classified. Oh, it's classified, huh? Huh? Was it during uh, Operation Strawberry Fields? I already said too much. It's a happy ending for the case, and it's a happy ending for Thanksgiving. Now, Mary and Aunt Deb could not come up with a turkey big enough to feed everybody for Thanksgiving. So, Kimikona <laughs> offers to make a shrimp casserole for Thanksgiving, which Danny immediately shoots down. He's not eating shrimp for Thanksgiving. But 
they don't have to because Steve had a contingency plan. And the contingency plan, as I said, was at the La Mariana. So the, the episode ends at the La Marnia, Mariana where Nikki the Kid is singing. And he ends up asking Aunt Deb to sing a song, which she reluctantly does. She ends up performing I Got the Sun in the Morning by Irving Berlin. And it's a really great way to end that episode as we now have the Thanksgiving happening at La Mariana. We have Aunt Deb singing, which was something she gave up in order to raise Mary and with the family together, knowing that this might be Aunt Deb's last Thanksgiving. This was Steve's contingency plan. And when Mary asks him about it, she sa- he says that this is his way of making memories for him and Mary and baby Joni, because Mary is very upset that baby Joni's not going to remember Aunt Deb. And Steve promises Mary that Joni will know her Aunt Deb because they will tell her all about her. So it's a very sweet, warm, fuzzy way to end this episode. And it's a fun episode. Like I said, the case is solid. But the heart of it is really Aunt Deb, and truly, it's Carol Burnett that makes this one worth the watch. No, absolutely not. You're not eating shrimp for Thanksgiving. And that is episode 46 of Bookham Dano. A very intriguing episode of the old school Hawaii Five-O with the little twists and the turns and the think you know, but you don't. And then we had a really nice reboot episode with a nice emotional core and the interesting case. And it had its own little twists and turns as well. So two very different episodes, but two really good episodes. I do hope you give them a watch and I hope you enjoy them. As always, I got to thank you for listening. I do appreciate your ears. Once again, apologies for any of the ambient background noise going on. It was in and out quite a bit, but that's all part of the charm of recording in a really loud house. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me on my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Be sure to check out the links to my Patreon. I always have fun projects going on there. And if you want to experience me going on and on in real time about short shorts, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So make sure you're dressed appropriately for an assassination. And remember, you gotta put your turkey in cold water if you're gonna thaw it. Until next time. Aloha!